A reading from the Gospel of John, the second chapter. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, well, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus heard her, Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, standing there were six stone jars for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, okay, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, okay, now draw out some and take it to the chief steward. So they took it, and when the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servant who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, oh, everyone, saves, uh, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The word of God. Someday, you'll realize how selfish you really are. You're not going in there dressed like that, are you? You kids are really a disappointment. You dress like you don't have a mother. You're almost perfect, except for those fat upper arms. <laughs> this, my friends, is the voice of shame. And I did not make these words up. Two weeks ago, I asked people to tell me their stories of shame, their words of shame that they'd heard going through life, and I got way too much material to cover. Doug, you've reached a plateau, and it is not adequate. <laughs> if you transfer, you'll be a loser, and you will be for the rest of your life. After I dropped band, my band director would always refer to me as Little Miss Could Have Been. You're just not college material. And finally, I'm not mad at you. I'm just disappointed. My close call with shame in the fourth grade, way too old for this to happen, I peed my pants. Yes, a snowy winter's day. We were just in from a big lunch and lots of King of the Hill and snowball fights. We were allowed to keep our snow pants and snowmobile suits on. And I was feeling so tired, so sleepy. <laughs> I believe I actually drifted off. And maybe I dreamed I was at the urinal. And I woke up to that unmistakable warm sensation running down my leg and this puddle forming at my feet, which I stirred in with the dirt and slush from the playground. I've only recently come to feel an enormous sense of gratitude for not being outed. Can you imagine the lifelong shame of the he pissed his pants in the fourth grade label? Praise Mrs. Dornquist, who must have noticed. 
Praise Tom McDonald, Mary Meyer, Karen Thomas, Joel Butenhoff, Todd Lundeen, who all sat near my desk. Praise the 3 p.m. bell and my slow exit from the classroom to the out of doors, where I could wash my snow pants clean with the new fallen snow. We all know it, that voice of shame, a voice that can paralyze, push us down, curl us up to our core, that voice that says, you will never be good enough. Welcome to this fourth Sunday of Epiphany and part two of Dr. Mark's Topics in Theology. Today's topic, shame. And we have the story of Jesus turning water into wine. And it's important to note the setting. The story is set within a religious system, a purity system. The religious authorities of the day divided their world into pure, in-place things, and impure, out-of-place things, a system of clean and unclean. Purity systems in ancient times like that, they provided maps of the entire cosmos, really, in which everything and everyone either fits and is considered clean or does not fit and is regarded as dirty or defiled. Now, the point is this. Some factions among the people of Israel during the time of Jesus subscribed to a very rigid system of purity. This was an oppressed people, a people whose land and whose honor had been trampled by a foreign army. They were occupied by the Roman Empire. And these oppressed people very much internalized the shame they were taught by the oppressors. They believed this false narrative that they deserved the shame somehow. They looked around and they blamed themselves. And they said, our troubles arose when we got dirty. We must reform, we must become pure. And so out of a slim portion of their ancient writings, they constructed this whole purity ethic by which they sought to cleanse and purify themselves and their people. They were very zealous about this purity code. In fact, they became very nervous. They washed their hands a lot. They were careful not to eat anything that would defile them. They were careful about who they ate with or who they talked to. They divided the whole world into the pure and the impure, the clean and the dirty. We have an artifact, an actual third century Pharisaic document that we can look at. I'll read just a small part of the Pharisaic order of things, a map of the cosmos, basically. Number one, there are such things which convey uncleanness by contact, such as a dead, creeping thing. Number two, they are exceeded by carrion, or dead animals. Number three, they are exceeded by the issue of him that has a flux, by his spittle and his mucus. Number four, they are exceeded by the uncleanness of an animal that is ridden upon by him that has a flux. Number five, the uncleanness of an animal that is written upon by him that has a flux is exceeded by what the animal lied upon. And it just keeps going on and on. I won't bore you. But it gets more and more graphic about body fluids and such, all kinds. So we have this nervous people trying to clean themselves up to encourage God to return and restore them to former glories. A people living in shame, shame that breeds more shame. I'd call it systemic shame, and that's the setting for this story. Jesus uh, acts in a really blunt manner, apparently, as we heard Dan read. Um, the, story, the prose is very lean in John. Uh, 
Jesus and his band of followers are attending this wedding at Cana in Galilee. And weddings in the ancient Near East were huge, and they lasted the entire week. And no expense was spared in showing your guests a really good time. A truly great wedding would yield great honor, could make you a legend among your family and friends. But a disastrous wedding could mire you in shame for the rest of your life. Now, at this wedding, something socially disastrous did happen. They ran out of wine. The party comes to a sudden stop, bone dry, huge shame potential. So Jesus' mother Mary points out the obvious to Jesus, tells him that the wine has run out, and after an apparently blunt reply to his mother, Jesus takes, asks the servants to take these big stone jars and fill them with water. Having done this, the servants ladle out some water and take it to the steward, the master of ceremonies. The MC tastes the wine and is shocked at how good and rich and complex the wine is. It has aromatic black and red fruit flavors with hints of vanilla, cherry, pepper, plum, and currant, all wrapped in sweet oak with a wild brambly note on the finish. It is weighty and yet at the same time somehow complex and delicate. The MC makes a quip about how hosts usually try to impress everyone by serving the best wine first, and then when everyone has had too much to tell the difference, they slip you the really cheap stuff, the Gallo Central Valley blended from God knows where wine that comes in those boxes. But while the MC and the other guests never even noticed that Jesus has somehow turned the water into wine, the disciples recognize this as a sign. Through this sign, the first one in the entire book of John, Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus' glory is turning the water of use for the purification ritual into good red wine for this giant wedding feast. Now, the thing about the Gospel of John, you don't get a lot of great character development because John is all about the symbols, lots of big, bold symbols that are woven together to convey John's grand story of Jesus, the Word made flesh. We have wine here. Wine symbolizes blood, the soul, love for the essential, life. Wine is alive, always interacting with the environment. Another symbol, we have a wedding. The wedding itself is heavily symbolic. The Hebrew prophets proclaim that God will not give up on his unfaithful people, but will, in the Messianic age, once again fall in love with Israel, and there will be a wedding feast. But there is one central symbol in this text, these six stone jars. They dominate the story. They take up the narrative space. These jars are big, massive, heavy. Each jar can hold two to three measures, that is 20 to 30 gallons. So they aren't so much jars as they are drums that are made out of stone, carved out of rock. And there are six of these 20 to 30 gallon stone drums. Imagine that we were to line them all up right here, these six massive stone jars. The purpose of the jars, they were meant to hold water for the purification ritual they represent symbolically the purity ethic, this idea that the people must ritually wash their hands before making contact with God, this idea that by cleaning ourselves up, 
by removing all filth and stain and pollution, we will hasten the arrival of God. And I'd like to suggest that to those who didn't have the means to follow the purity laws, these jars were the jars of shame. These six stone jars might just as well have had a word carved into each one of them. You will never be good enough. That's what they said to the people. You will never be good enough. You will never be smart enough or strong enough or pure enough or successful enough or whatever adjective of shame has you beaten down. You will never be a good enough teacher, a good enough mother, a good enough son or daughter, a good enough friend, a good enough artist or songwriter. You will never be a good enough preacher. The center of the story is the transformation of these stone jars. These jars, these symbols of the purity ethic, these jars of shame are transformed, filled with 150 gallons of excellent, full-bodied, complex, rich red wine, wine for the wedding party. The point that John is trying to make is so obvious here. Nervous attempts at purity are cut short by this epiphany, this appearance of God, who turns our nervous obsession with purity into a party. Instead of the shaming purity ethic, we have this lavish outpouring of the gifts of God that humans are meant to celebrate as at a wedding feast. This completely undoes you and your religion. Here you are, feeling slightly ashamed of yourself, covering, hiding, maybe not wanting to probe too deeply. You're trying to do better, to clean up your act, to get closer to God, to work harder, to be better, so that God won't feel ashamed of you. And God places that finger to your lips and says, shh, no more. And God takes the cup and pours the rich red wine into your thirsty mouth and tells you, you are loved, the you that you are right here and right now. That shame that you feel has nothing to do with God. Those six stone jars of shame that say you will never be good enough, God doesn't simply destroy them. God goes even further. In such a sneaky and subversive way, God transforms your self-doubt, self-scrutiny, and shame into a party. Relax, God says. I am giving myself away to you. And this is cause for rich, deep, complex joy. Not escapism that denies the violence in the world, but joy here with you in your very flesh. And this joy, this gift, this grace, it's going to change your life. Because you are now called to undo the shame. What's the opposite of shame? Praise. It all starts with our kind and loving and brilliant God who we praise. Not a God of random power and might, but a God who loves madly and unconditionally and creatively. The God who honors you with the finest meal, the best seat in the house. The God who speaks through the shame of the cross. The Romans designed crucifixion 
as a grand public display, a status degradation ritual for all the world to see, the shame show. And God's beautiful recreation is to take that very show and turn it into a show of divine love, mercy, forgiveness, hope. Hope refuses to die. Mercy is the measure. God raises this innocent victim from the dead to confront our shame, our violence, our status degradation rituals. And now you are called, not to shame, but to praise. Praise this God of lavish love who turns your water into wine. Praise your friends. Praise your children. Praise the stranger, the villain, the nearsighted, and the underachiever. Praise the left. Praise the right. Praise those who don't deserve it. Praise those who do. Praise God, this God, the source of all goodness, kindness, and love. This story of the lavish outpouring of wine has a nice companion story in chapter 6 of the book of John in which a crowd of 5,000 are gathered with nothing to eat. Jesus takes five loaves and two fish and turns them into a meal for 5,000 in which there are 12 baskets of leftovers. Put these two stories together, mix in this heavily symbolic mode of John's storytelling, and you have these overtones of the Eucharist meal, the communion table. Though the community of John is beaten down and poor and oppressed, subjects of Roman ridicule and gossip and shame. When they gather around the table, God, the lavish giver, transforms their simple meal into 150 gallons of rich red wine and fresh baked bread for 5,000. Mm-hmm.